Now, Birdsong, fun and fascinating talk about the top stories in today's headlines. Birdsong may just be the most qualified talk show host in the business, thanks to his many careers in law, government, and education. Here's your host, Leonard Birdsong. Hello, folks. This is Birdsong back with you. The show is uh, informative and entertaining. I will talk to a guest today. My guest is um, a former lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He's now a law professor. His name is Samuel Kan. The Olympics are going on in Korea, as you know, and we're going to talk a little bit about North and South Korea. And I'm going to say that maybe we will be at war with North Korea. I hope not, but it is possible. Now, as a radio performer, over the years, I've given predictions. Some of them have come true. Some of them haven't. 1994, after O.J. Simpson was arrested, I made the prediction that he would never be convicted of first-degree murder. In 1997, he wasn't convicted of murder, but in 1997, he was tried in a civil case, a wrongful death case. I predicted that he would lose that. He did. He got a $33,000, I guess, uh, $33,000 that he has to pay for this suit. In 1999, a little young guy by the name of Elian Gonzalez from Cuba, he and his mother were trying to escape from Cuba on a boat. His mother drowned. He was picked up by fishermen. This was in Florida. His family wanted him to get political asylum. I vowed, not vowed, I predicted he would not get political asylum, and he did not. In 2000, I made a strange prediction that I thought perhaps in 20 years, that is, in 2020, we might be in war at war with China. I hope that doesn't happen. In 2010, Casey Anthony was a young mother in Florida who allegedly killed her baby. She was prosecuted for first-degree murder. I predicted she would not be convicted, and she was not. Now, we'll see how my predictions come out. I hope we don't have a war with North Korea. But let's talk a little bit more about it. My guest is Professor Samuel Kahn. He teaches at the Berry Law School in Florida. He is a 1994 graduate of the West Point Academy. He rose to be a lieutenant colonel in the Army. He served in Korea from 2001 to 2002 and again from 2012 to 2014. So he knows something about that part of the world. Professor Kahn, are you with us? I am. Good morning. Good to hear you. Good morning. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right, then. Well, I'm going to, you heard my little monologue about the predictions I made, and uh, I'm going out on the limp and saying there may be a dust-up war against North Korea next year. I hope not, but it could be possible because our president, Donald Trump, and the president or the leader of North Korea have been sparring with words like little rocket man and an old leader and this, that, and the other. So it might be possible. What do you think about all of this? I know you are a military man. You know a lot about it, and you have been in Korea. What can you tell our audience? Well, thanks again for having me. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to just have a brief disclaimer. Uh, I have worked with the United States Army for over 20 years. Uh, I served as part of the Department of Defense Office of General Counsel. But anything that I say today should only be attributed to me. They are my personal opinions. They should not be attributed to the Department of Defense, nor should they be attributed to the United States Army. 
So all of these opinions are only my my own. Uh, furthermore, uh, there's a lot I will not be able to talk about. A lot of the information, uh, such as rules of engagement, reaction time, actual threat conditions, all of that is classified. So I'm going to have to keep my comments uh, limited to the uh, information that's available in the in the general public. All so, right, we uh, understand that disclaimer, and I'm glad that you did that. Uh, but you have actually been to Korea. Let's first of all talk about some of the characters to get these names straight. There is a country called North Korea. We all know about it. The leader there is Kim Jong-un. It became a republic in 1948. The real name of North Korea is the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, the DPRK. His father, I'm sorry, the Kim Jong-un's grandfather, was Kim El-sung. He was the original and the first president of the DPRK, and he was in office from 1948 until his death in 1994. In uh, about 1994, 1995, his son, Kim Il-sung's son, Kim Jong-il, succeeded him as the leader, and when he died in 2011, Kim Jong-un came to power. Now, basically, both the North Korea, the DPKR, and the ROK, that is the Republic of Korea or South Korea, both became new countries in 1948. And uh, in 1950, we know that there was a Korean War. That Korean War never completely ended. There's an armistice. There was not a peace agreement. So the countries... In, the United States are still sort of at war. We have a lot of troops stationed in the Korea area, probably more than 18,000 as I understand it. However, the Korean people, the South Korean people, they all speak the same language. Some of them have the same history. From what I know, the first tools or vessels that they found in Korea were carbon dated to 8,000 B.C. So Koreans have been around for a long time. But why are we at war or loggerheads with North Korea? Can you tell us something about that, Professor? Yeah, well, actually, I'd like to answer both of those questions, but uh, I'd like to answer your first question that you answered, uh, asked me a while ago, um, with the proposition that we may imminently be at war with uh, North Korea. And I'd like to uh, say that my personal opinion is I, I disagree with that uh, general contention. Uh, and uh, I'd like to give you a little bit of context. So okay. when I was there in 2001, I remember that the threat was very high, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there were uh, numerous restrictions on what we could do, how long we could be gone for, uh, and also unit structure levels. So there was significant concerns, and so these concerns have been going on between North and South Korea for decades. Uh, and so I remember uh, showing up. Um, in 2000, uh, I actually showed up late 2001 and then was there for 2002. Uh, but I remember things were so dangerous that I was told that we were imminently going to be moving south. Well, hmm. let me tell you this. I went back in 2012, and you know where I actually moved back to? I moved back one office over from the office <laughs> I was in in 2001 and 2002. So all I've got to say is if things were so imminent, if things were so dangerous, why are we doing the things that we are doing? Why have we had family members over there for decades? 
why do we have so many things that we do on a daily basis? Uh, why are we going to the Olympics together? Um, there are there are so many things that uh, show, if you take a look over time, that this uh, sparring has been going on for quite some time. And so what I would contend is, you know, we should plan for the you know possibility. We should train for the possibility that should not affect any of our behaviors. So, for example, we should continue to train to evacuate. We should continue to train with the uh, nations in the area with regards to joint operations, and we should be prepared to execute a plan to potentially deal with a military threat in North Korea. That being said, we should not in any way be so focused on what potentially might happen that we fail to focus on the daily tasks of what we need to do to be successful. So I'll give you another example. When I was in Afghanistan, I remember that there were some who did not deal with the stress very well. And so they were so stressed out that they could not physically function. Uh, are these the and, officers uh, or are these the enlisted men? On both sides. Uh, on both sides. I had a, uh, a major in my, we called them B-huts at the time, where there were basically wooden um, structures. <laughs> that, that was it. They were like plywood structures. Uh, no plumbing. Um, I remember when I showed up, uh, I, I walked in. It was probably like, I don't know, maybe seven feet by seven feet space. Uh, and, and there was no bed, no cot, nothing. And, and that's mm. how I I, uh, I got to Afghanistan. And I, and I think a lot of people really didn't react well to that. And there were mortar rounds that were coming in and helicopters that were going down, a lot of bad things that were going on. And some people just didn't react very well. So what I would say is you should focus on what you can control. Don't focus on what you can't control. And when mortar rounds were coming in, and maybe this was once such a good idea, but I didn't run to the bunker every single time a mortar round came in. I was like, you know what? If I don't get any sleep, I will not be productive the next day. Um, right. And so I I slept through the mortar rounds. I slept through the rounds coming in, and um, and I was very, you know, I was I was very productive. Uh, now that being said, uh, there were some mortar rounds that did hit some um, uh, some places, and, and some casualties did occur, but. When I looked at the probabilities, I was like, well, the probability is relatively low, and the probability that I have to go to work tomorrow and be productive is extremely high. And so, therefore, I have to balance that productivity and make sure that I make an educated decision. So I would say the same thing occurs here. We should plan. We should execute. We should do all the things that we need to do to be successful, but not so much that we focus on that so much that we are not otherwise productive. That's really good advice, and I we really thank you the service you've given to your country. I have some information here that uh, there was um, classified documents or declassified documents have come to light that uh, were actually published in 1994, the year you graduated from West Point. And uh, these uh, declass- declassified now documents talked about if there had been a war with North Korea in the 1990s, a lot of people would have died. The Pentagon estimated at that time that if war broke out with Korea, about 52,000 American service members might be killed, and South Korea military casualties and uh, civilian casualties would mount to 490,000. That's a lot of people. But now the prediction that I've made that there may be a war with North Korea, if you read the news, listen to the news, there's been talk that... The Pentagon may be preparing 
for what's known as a bloody nose strike. Not a nuclear strike, but something just to make North Korea to back off on what they're doing with all of these ballistic missiles they've been testing. Maybe just, you know, a, a quick attack, not uh, with nuclear weapons, but something to bloody the nose and wake them up. Now, again, we don't have an uh, ambassador in South Korea to help us out. The fellow who had been nominated decided that he did not want to go. He withdrew his name because he heard the Pentagon was coming up with the idea of this bloody nose attack theory, which he thought was pretty silly. What do you think about that, Professor? Well, I, what I would say is that I, I think that everyone realizes that no one, no one is going to win a conflict between North Korea and South Korea. Right. The, for those of you who haven't been over to the region, it's not like the area of Texas that's spread out, like like you know between San Antonio and, and Fort Bliss. I mean, there's just lots of nothing, right? But uh, but that's not the way South Korea is. If you go to South Korea, there are high rises everywhere. And the footprint continues to expand. And so you have to realize the amount of space that we're talking about is very, very small. So whenever you have a very, very small space, you have a lot of people. Well, you don't need the classified or the unclassified studies to figure out that things are going to be really, really bad if there is some type of military course of action that is pursued. So I, I think, I hope that... Uh, that we don't go down that road, and, and I hope that we continue to use diplomacy and other tools that are available to us so that we don't need to use the military course of action. That being said, uh, sometimes the best way not to have a military engagement is to be totally ready for a military engagement and to be totally ready to execute that, uh, because I believe that if people know that you're ready to execute uh, and that you are totally prepared, they are probably less likely to take you on and to challenge you. So I think that our strategy should be the same, that we should be ever vigilant and we should continue to prepare and to train. Um, but I don't. I would not personally recommend um, some type of bloody nose engagement. I, I see that that potentially is volatile and uh, very, you know, once you start something like a little fire, it's hard to control. Right. So, um, and, and there's also the political now, ramifications. Let, that, let, right? let me do this, um, Professor. I uh, need to take a break here. Can you stay with us and come back sure, and finish this sure. point for me? Happy to. Happy to. All right. This is Birdsong. We're talking with uh, Professor Samuel Kahn, former lieutenant colonel in the Army, and we're talking about North and South Korea. Stick with us. There's more to come. All right, folks, Birdsong back with you. So happy that you're here and listening in. We're talking about uh, Korea, the Olympics that are going on in South Korea, North Korea, which is called the Hermit Kingdom. They're joining in these Olympics. Usually they do not. Will there be a rapprochement between North and South Korea? We don't know. The leader of North Korea, who is Kim Jong-un, his sister, came down to the opening ceremonies of the Olympics uh, this weekend, and she invited the South, Afri uh, South uh, Korean president to come to North Korea. And we will see what happens. He made a guarded 
sort of uh, thank you to her. And he said, "May I'll, I'll do that if this can be worked out or if things are well enough to do that. At any rate, I'm here with uh, Professor Samuel Kahn, who is in the United States, was in the United States Army, so served in Korea, had two tours there. Professor Kahn, do you know or did you have a chance to mingle with any of the Korean people when you were in station in South Korea? All the time. All the, in fact, I uh, married a Korean national. So I went there, and uh, uh, I was very involved with uh, those who were there. I, we work with the prosecutor's office, uh, and we work with the soldiers of the Republic of Korea. Uh, and so that was uh, one of the nice benefits of being able to uh, serve overseas. Yeah. Now, did you learn to speak any Korean? You know, I, I wish I could say I did, um, but uh, I can only speak certain phrases. So um, I actually know more Spanish than, than Korean, so, uh, so that's not such a good thing. But uh, my wife clearly uh, was, um, still is, a uh, permanent resident uh, from uh, South Korea, and so she speaks fluently, and we still have a lot of relatives over in South Korea. Well, that sounds good. I uh, may have told you in the past that I used to represent a lot of Korean Korean families in Washington, D.C. when I was in private practice. I helped them with their business as a lawyer, and I also helped them with immigration problems. Uh, I helped many Koreans uh, pass the American citizenship test so they could uh, become naturalized and bring their parents to the United States. Unfortunately, I only know about two words in Korean, but I had Korean paralegals in my firm to help out. But I find them to be very nice people, and uh, if you know how to eat with chopsticks like I do, you can get along well. <laughs> you know, I would add one thing. You know, when when those of you who haven't been outside the United States and specifically to Asia, it is really eye-opening. Um, it is... I, I hate to say this, but uh, when I came back from North, from South Korea to to um, the United States, I actually I was wondering why in the world is my internet not working very well, and then I said, you know what, I know why my internet's not working well, because I'm in the United States, and, and that's really <laughs> sad, very very sad. I mean, you go to South Korea, the technology is 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 amazing. I, uh, that's what I, I understand. You, I understand that. I've heard that. Yeah, it's 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 unfortunately it's far advanced compared to to us. We're 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 way behind, uh, which is actually very sad. I would hope that the United States was the leader of technology and and at the forefront. But uh, when you take a look overseas, we're not. I uh, visited my my brother, who was in Hong Kong, um, and uh, and he still works in Hong Kong, and and I remember saying, you know what, this looks just like New York, and he said, you know what, you got it all wrong. New York looks like Hong Kong. Take a look at all the signs. Take a look at all the billboards. Sony, Panasonic, all those things, you know, that's all Asia. And so if you think of from that perspective, you know, we are the ones who are, we being the United States, we are the ones who are behind. We, we might eat with forks, but our Internet, everything that we have is slow in comparison. to, to right. You go over there and their buildings are far beyond uh, what what any of our facilities might have. Well, they're, they've concentrated on infrastructure in Asia, as I understand it. We need to be doing that here. Let me get back to this whole thing about war with Korea. I hope that we do not go to war with Korea, although I'm predicting that it could happen with the administration we have. 
Now, what really worries me, Professor, is that in the United States, the president and only the president of the United States has the authority to order the unleashing of nuclear weapons. This power is not given by the Constitution or any specific law, but from what I can figure, it results from a series of Cold War decisions made secretly by the executive branch and the U.S. military. So I hope our president won't use this awesome power. Something that gives me perhaps hope is that uh, yesterday the news uh, was showing that Vice President Pence is willing to talk with North Korea, and maybe that will help. You had talked about diplomacy, and I always think diplomacy is good, war is bad, but sometimes you have to go to war. Are you aware of the fact that Vice President Pence has been talking about perhaps having talks with North Korea? I, I am not aware of, uh, again, I, I'm only aware of what has been in the media, but uh, I have found that media reports aren't always correct. So I'm always very wary to to uh, to trust um, the media reports. Again, I think it's very important to, uh, to get a, a general understanding of what is going on, but uh, every single day you always hear retractions and you hear... Um, reformations of opinion, and so I, I have learned that it's very good to um, trust but verify. Uh, and so, um, yeah. and, and furthermore, not only should you trust and verify, but even though people may plan to do certain things, uh, other events occur and, and they change their, their minds and their opinions. So I, I think that if there is an opportunity uh, to engage diplomatically, uh, you know, I think we would potentially... Uh, not be wise not to pursue those options if they potentially may be legitimate courses of action. All right. That is a very good answer. Before I go, why do you think that the North Koreans want to have what they call a hermit kingdom that has pretty much cut itself off from the rest of the world? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I guess when we talk about North Korea, uh, it sounds like we're talking about it as a uh, as a human who's making conscious decisions uh, for the entire body. Uh, and so what I would say is that there is a leadership structure, and then there are the people who are at the bottom who don't have a lot of say. So I would argue that the people at the bottom would prefer to be well-fed, would prefer to have Internet connections, would prefer to have a lot of freedoms if they knew those freedoms and those resources were available to them. So, so I would argue that it's the leadership that has been isolationist uh, with regards to their policies uh, and partially, and, or maybe majority, you know, to, to remain and to stay in control. So if the populace is um, you know, not well-educated, uh, maybe not you know, as fed as, as the, um, the elite – uh, then it's probably easier to stay in control. Yeah, it's a cult, really. The cult of the Kims, isn't it? A lot of it's people a, don't know. I'm go sorry, go on. You go ahead. No, no, no. I, I think that uh, you can see that uh, the, the leadership has stayed in power through generations of the family structure for some time. And so, uh, you know, North Korea is not alone in that uh, we take a look and see that in many other areas of the world as well. Uh, and we see conflicts potentially of a lot greater than, than what we see in, in South Korea. You know, I uh, found some facts about the Korean peninsula that I didn't know. 
from 1910 to the end of the World War II, Korea was under Japanese rule. Most people don't know that. Most Koreans then were peasants engaged in subsistence farming. In the 1930s, uh, I found that Japan developed mines, hydroelectric dams, steel mills, and manufacturing plants in the northern part of Korea, neighboring Manchuria. So they used to have a lot of heavy industry in the north, but after the countries divided, uh, things went down in uh, the northern part of Korea. They became two separate countries. I also understand that a lot of things in North Korea are done underground. They have mines and they have factories that are underground because they fear being attacked and bombed and that sort of thing. You know anything about that? Well, um, I and I don't mean to put you on the spot. If, I don't yeah, want you I can to only talk about what is what is is, is available in, in, in the uh, in, in in the public. Um, but uh, but I think that uh, it is uh, not unusual to have those type of structures or or those types of bunkers. Uh, you even see that here in the United States. We have people who are fearing a nuclear Armageddon, uh, and, and they're creating bunkers themselves. Uh, yep, huge, that's true. Uh, homes and structures underneath the ground. Uh, and so uh, I would think it's relatively safe here in the United States. And if they're doing that here in the United States, well, one could imagine what might you know others do elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. It's awfully cold over there now in the Olympics, as I understand it. Glad I'm not there. Uh, winters tend to be harsh in Korea because of the Siberian Express, as I understand. Is that right? You have a couple of winters there? Yes, uh, nor, uh, the, the Korean Peninsula is um, the land of extremes. Uh, when I was over there in, uh, in 2001, 2002, I remember all the things that we had to deal with. We had flood con, we had huge floods coming through. We had snow con, and we had huge snowstorms. I remember showing up uh, in late December uh, of 2001 uh, and not being able to drive anywhere because the snow was so tall they closed off the roads. Uh, and we also have, yeah, and we also have really uh, extreme hot summers as well. So Korea is definitely the land of extremes with regards to temperatures, with regards to climate. Uh, there, uh, there are these huge, if you go over to Korea, there are these huge, they almost look like rivers. And they're, they're basically, they're just empty concrete uh, structures. So when the floods and the rains come, uh, those that are basically totally empty potentially even overflow. Uh, and so that basically just shows you uh, how dangerous, and, and people die in the mud storms and the, and the floods uh, because, again, it is the land of extremes. All right. Well, listen, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. I hope you are right that diplomacy will prevail, although we should be prepared. I hope we do not go to war with North Korea, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Thanks so much, Professor. Thank you so much. Great to be here. All right, folks, this is Birdsong. I'm going to still be here with you. There's more to come. You'll hear some dumb criminal law stories that I work on. Stick with us. There is more to come. Hey, folks, this is Birdsong. I'm back with you here on the radio. Love talking to you. We had a good guest, a good talk with uh, Professor Samuel Cam. He Used to be in the Army, been stationed in Korea, told us some things about it. We know the Olympics are going on right now, so it's a good time to talk about Korea. 
Some of you know that uh, for many years I was a law professor. I wrote scholarly articles, and I taught, and I researched. I also collected dumb criminal law stories, sort of a hobby, and turned into me writing several books. I still collect these stories, and I like to read them on the air. There are dumb criminals from all over the world. Here's the first one for today. It comes from California. The headline says, Irresistible Impulse or Unexplained Impulse. A state judge will lose his job after helping himself to two desk card holders, each worth 30 to $50. Napa County Judge Michael Williams was caught on videotape swiping the pieces at the City Club of San Francisco during a meeting last summer of matrimonial lawyers. Judge Williams apologized, saying he had a, quote, unexplained impulse, end quote, to take the holders. He was censured by a state's ethic panel and agreed to step down from the bench. How silly. <laughs> Here's another one from California. The headline on this one read, No Joke, Dummy. It's been reported that San Francisco police are trying to help a professional ventriloquist who was robbed of the doll he uses in his act. The 20-year-old victim was mugged in the Mission District, police said. He suffered minor injuries trying to fight off the suspects who grabbed his dummy. <laughs> no arrest has been made. I wonder what they did with this ventriloquist dummy. All right, folks, there are more stories of dumb criminal officers. They never go away. This one from Florida. Headline. Almost naked as a jaybird. It's been reported that Alexandra Pablos, 26, got most of her jail jumpsuit caught in the fence while escaping from the Orange County Jail in Orlando early last June, according to police officials. Thus, when a police dog wrestled her into submission, she was wearing only a bra, panties, and a jail ID card around her neck. Almost naked as a jaybird. <laughs> Where else? Here's one. Fake it until you make it. Not. This story also comes from Florida. There are lots of these dumb criminal law stories from Florida. A man pretending to be a police officer was arrested when he tried to pull over a woman who turned out to be a real-life police officer. Milton Perez, 46, allegedly rolled down the window of his Ford Mustang, flashed a fake silver badge, and ordered Miami officer Kenya Falat to stop the car. Falat, who was driving an unmarked police car, prom promptly charged him with impersonating an officer and false arrest. He was sent to the clink. <laughs> you ever needed a lift? This is another story from Florida. It said the headline, the headline said rather, need a lift? It appears that a Florida man was tired of walking, so he stole what? A $38,000 forklift and drove it to his home in Port Orange. We learn that this was not Bradley Barefoot's first forklift heist. He also stole one a year ago in Daytona Beach, Florida, according to police. All right. A story from Idaho, a very strange one. The headline, What Mother Wouldn't Help Her Daughter? It's been reported an Idaho woman was recently arrested for allegedly stealing the placenta and umbilical cord from the room where her daughter had just given birth. Her name, Rhiannon Stoneham, 
suspected her daughter had used drugs during her pregnancy and wanted to hide that from doctors and police, according to the police report. Miss Stoneham was charged with felony destruction of evidence. Now, I've heard of a lot of crimes in my time, but never one of stealing placenta and an umbilical cord. <laughs> this is Birdsong. These dumb criminal stories never go away, folks. Here's a story from Colorado about some dangerous criminals. The headline said, A Case of Dangerous Vegetable. A Colorado man was sentenced in late July this past year to 16 years in prison for murdering a man who lashed out at him after buying $10,000 worth of what he thought was marijuana, but was actually broccoli. His name was uh, Colbert Evans. He was 26. He had been arrested last March, along with his accomplice, Terrell Davis. The pair reportedly sold the phony marijuana to two men in the town of Aurora, Colorado, both of whom they shot after the victims complained that it was broccoli and not marijuana. What did prosecutors say? Quote, this may be the first time that broccoli has been bad for someone's health. End quote. <laughs> oh, my God. Talk about how dumb they are. I used to be a federal prosecutor in Washington, D.C. That We used to say that's why we catch them. They're dumb. A story from Connecticut. Bad, bad choices. Two men in late July of last year approached a out-of-uniform Hartford police officer as he left the station house. They came up to him and asked if they could buy cocaine from him. The men said to the un the uh, plainclothes police officer, we need to go to the ATM for some cash first, but wait right here. When they returned, the off-duty officer, of course, arrested them. <laughs> okay, folks, our last story comes from Florida. Here's the headline. A terrible shot in the groin. We learned that a Florida man could be jailed for accidentally shooting himself in the penis. Cedric Jeltz, 38, of Jacksonville, Florida, ran to the bathroom of a stranger's home after he sat on his gun in his car and the gun went off. The homeowner followed Jelks, saw that he was wounded, and took him to a hospital where he underwent surgery. Jelks, we learn, may now face some jail time for possession of a firearm because of his 2004 felony conviction for cocaine possession. Convicted felons are not allowed to carry or to own firearms. There's no information on the wounded penis. <laughs> this is Birdsong. Those are our dumb criminal law stories for this week. There will be more, folks. <laughs> Stick with us. This is Birdsong back with you, folks. A good show we're having here. I sure enjoyed being with you. We uh, just told you some dumb criminal law stories. I collect them. But here's a story that a person that I really like, Paul Harvey, he was a great radio man. For years and years, he worked out of Chicago. He did the news. He loved the news. He also did what are known the rest of the story stories. And you have to listen to him, and you learn something. I'm going to have tell you one of the stories that Paul Harvey used to tell. It's called Better Late Than Never. He is lying there on the grass, hiding and thinking. He has studied the little girl's habit. 
He knew she would come outside her grandfather's house mid-afternoon to play. He hated himself for this. In his whole miserable, messed-up life, he'd never considered anything so callous as kidnapping. Yet, here he was, lying in the grass, hidden by trees from the house, waiting for an innocent, red-haired, two-year-old girl-child to come within reach. It was a long wait. There was time to think. Maybe all of his life, Harlan, had been in too much of a hurry. He was five when his Hoosier farmer father died. At fourteen, he dropped out of Greenwood School and hit the road. He tried odd jobs as a farmhand. He hated it. He tried being a streetcar conductor, and he hated that. At sixteen, he lied about his age and joined the Army. And he hated that, too. When his one-year enlistment was up, he headed for Alabama, tried blacksmithing, and failed. He became a railroad locomotive fireman with the Southern Railroad. He liked that. He figured maybe he had found himself. But at 18, he got married. And within months, wouldn't you know it, she announced she was pregnant the day he announced he had been fired again. Then one day, while he was out job hunting, his young wife gave away all of their possessions and went home to her parents. Then came the depression. Harlan couldn't win for losing, they say. He really tried. Jobs, jobs he tried. Once while working as a succession of railroad jobs, he tried studying law by correspondence. But he dropped out of that, too. He tried selling insurance, selling tires. He tried running a ferry boat, running a filling station. No use. Face it, Harlan was a loser. And now here he was, hiding in the weeds, outside of Roanoke, Virginia, plotting a kidnapping. As I say, he watched the little girl's habits, knew about her afternoon playtime. But this one day... She did not come out to play, so his chain of failures remained unbroken. Late in life, he became chief cook and bottle washer at a restaurant in Corbin and did all right until the new highway bypassed the restaurant. And then he expected life, rather he expected his lifespan had run out. He's not the first man, nor will he be the last to arrive at the twilight of life with nothing to show for it. The bluebird of happiness, or whatever, had always fluttered just out of his reach. He stayed honest, except for the one time when he had attempted kidnapping. In fairness to his name, it must be noted that it was his own daughter he meant to kidnap. And this was from his runaway wife. As it turns out, both the wife and the daughter returned to him the next day anyway. But now the years had slid by, and a lifetime was gone, and he had nothing. He had not really felt old until the day the postman brought what? His first Social Security check. That day, something within Harlan resented, resisted, and exploded. The government was feeling sorry for him. You had all of those hitless times at bat. The government was saying, you've had it. It's time to give up and retire. His restaurant customers in Corbin said they'd miss him, 
but his government said 65 candles on the birthday cake is enough. They sent him a, a pension check and told him that he was old. He said nuts. And he got so angry, he took the $105 check and started a new business. Today, that business is prospering. Harlan lived past the age of 65. For the man, I'm sorry, beyond 65, he went all the way to age 85. For the man who failed at everything save one thing, the man who might have been a law-breaking kidnapper, had it not been for the fact that he failed at that, the man who never got started until it was time to stop was Harlan Sanders. The new business he started with his first Social Security check, what was it? was Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC. Now you know the rest of the story. Good story. Don't give up. This is Birdsong here. I always try to end on a high note, a funny note. Here are a couple of riddles for you. What do you get when you cross a dinosaur with a pig? Can you figure that one out? What do you get when you cross a dinosaur with a pig? If you guess Jurassic Pork, you would be right. <laughs> Here's another one for you. What do spiders order at fast food resident restaurants? Rather, what do spiders order at fast food restaurants? Think about it. Shouldn't be hard. Well, spiders order burger and flies <laughs> at fast food restaurants. Last one. What kind of keys can't open doors, folks? What kind of keys cannot open doors? Think about it. The kind of keys that can't open doors are monkeys. <laughs> this is Birdsong. It's been fun being with you today. We will be back with you next week. Stick with us. Birdsong always informs and entertains. Love you. Talk to you later.